chapter 6. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Nehemiah. And last week we took a a hiatus from it as we observe the Lord's Supper and have been recently baptizing this two weeks ago and we're going to baptize again this coming Sunday and so just felt like we needed to, to talk about the ordinances and just look at it from a doctrinal standpoint. What does the Bible say about baptism? What does the Bible say about the Lord's Supper and why, do we, uh, why should we do these two things in the church? What is the purpose there? And so last week that's what we studied. This morning we're going to jump right back into the vein of Nehemiah and see what God is continuing to do is we were worshiping this morning, I, I love the music that we were singing. And when we sing about the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, that the blood of Christ is the one who gives us victory over sin, over death, over the enemy who is seeking to destroy us. That one who gives us victory is Jesus. He is the Messiah, is the one who's anointed, who came to pay the penalty for our sin. We've declared that in Jesus we have absolutely everything. And so this morning as we come to Nehemiah chapter 6 and we're talking about uh, what the struggle that was he was facing, what the people of God were facing, I want to encourage us this morning from the story of Nehemiah, from what's going on in, in, at this time in history, because we have a God who stands on our behalf, who fights for us. And so this morning I want us to learn from Nehemiah and how we can press on in our life. And, and one of the people in history who knew a little bit about difficulty and adversity was Winston Churchill. We probably have heard about Sir Winston Churchill. He was a British writer, he was a military leader, and he was a great statesman. He was twice named the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I mean, we know and we revere him as one of the one who forged alliances with both the United States and the Soviet Union to bring down Nazi Germany and the other Axis powers there in World War II. However, if we were to go back to 1940, Winston Churchill might have seemed the man least likely to lead Great Britain successfully through the traumas and the challenges that were associated with World War II. Before Hitler's invasion of Poland in 1939, Churchill's political career, which was long, but it was marked by all sorts of failures and a growing coalition of enemies. He had people all around him that hated him. He was fired from positions, lost elections. His childhood was characterized by unleavened parents, illness, fears, and even a speech impediment. And yet Churchill, history has told us, emerged as one of the great leaders of the 20th century. There are all kinds of explanations. We could go back and ask different historians what led to his ability to lead the nation during crisis. There's all sorts of explanations there. But I believe that he was one who understood how to continue to press forward. I mean, neither he nor his British people, his citizens, got bogged down into the details at that particular time. They weren't involved in petty politics or competing interests. Everyone was focused on winning the war. That was their obsession. But here's a man that understood how to press forward. Here's a statement I want to make, and I want to build off this statement as we look into Nehemiah's life. The circumstances don't create the man. They only reveal his character. Look at this statement on the screen. The circumstances don't reveal or don't create the man. They only reveal his character. And so people looking at, at, at Winston Churchill back in 1939, 1940, even early days of the World War II times, they might have thought, who is this guy? How is he leading this? How is he ever going to bring his victory? We've seen his checkered past. And yet the crisis of the nation didn't begin to create who Winston Churchill was. It just began to pull off the rough edges and revealed who he really was. See, one of the qualities that 
Winston Churchill possessed was a ferocious courage. This was not to say that he lacked fear. Rather, it's to say that he did not submit to that fear. Now, there are a lot of times we as Christians, we get bogged down in our fear. I was just uh, thinking here as we were singing that last song, a verse came to my mind in 2 Timothy where Paul says that we're not given a spirit of fear, but we've been given a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. We have everything that we need in Jesus Christ to be ferocious, to be courageous, to be one who can charge against the enemy and charge against the difficulties and have confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord. Winston Churchill possessed courage. Here's a couple statements that he made during his life. He said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. So many times in life, we just want to get up or give up when things become difficult, when they seem to be impossible. But it's courage that continues to help us press on. He also said, never give in. Never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. It was this never give in approach to life that stayed the British people through the sacrifices of war and allowed Winston Churchill to face his critics and keep to the task. As we look at Nehemiah, we see the same sort of tenacity in this man's life. He was a fearless man. He was a courageous man. He was a great leader, not because he was something special, but because God was special in his life. This morning, I want us to look at the life of Nehemiah, and I want us to see how he was courageous and pressed on. Just for sake of reminder, what's going on here during the life and the tenure of, of Nehemiah? Well, he's the governor of Judah, and during his tenure, as we've already seen, Jerusalem was a mixture of self-interest. It's a mixture of conspiracy and spiritual devotion, faint religiosity. There's faith and there's also parochialism, all intertwined in this city, in this region of Israel. There were devoted workers around him, as well as unprincipled people surrounding Nehemiah in his work. So with the realization that the wall was nearing completion, despite the many attempts to halt the work, the focus of intimidation by Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem moved from the populace to the leader. And so what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 6 and, and chapter 7 is that they're no longer going to focus their, their imita- intimidation on the people. They're now going to focus on one particular man, and his name is Nehemiah. And so they tried to lure him away from Jerusalem in order to murder him or to charge him with some sort of crime. Then they hired prophets to trap and discredit him. And yet Nehemiah, what did he do? He holds to his task. He never gave in. He courageously pressed on in the work that God had called him to do. Therefore, this is the subject that I want to speak to this morning. Pressing on in life. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. Verse 1. Nehemiah tells us, now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter. 
in his hand, and it, it, in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up the prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, are, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. It will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God. According to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who went to make me, who wanted to make me afraid. Look, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son Jehu Hanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. What a great story this is. As we've been walking through this story, as we've seen Nehemiah early on in his days, we, we saw him hearing the report and, and being moved to action, moved to prayer, and God begins to answer his prayers and, and give him a vision of what was to take place, what he was to do in response to what he had heard. And now we're beginning to see how all of this vision that God had placed in his heart is coming to fruition, that the wall is being completed, that the enemies are being defeated, and God is being glorified. Nehemiah here in this, this chapter and in chapter 7 shows us how to press on in the work regardless of the circumstances. Because although he had the vision of God in his heart and, and the plans of God in his mind, he knew what he was to do. There was also all sorts of criticism, all sorts of ridicule around him. There were people talking and sending letters. There was all sorts of things working against him and yet he continued to press on. When it was easy to quit, he pressed on. Isn't it easy to quit? It's easy to quit. The easiest thing you can do in life is quit. The absolute easiest thing to do is to quit. That's why so many people quit. It's because it's the easy way. The people who finish the race are the ones who tough it out. They're the ones who go the long haul. They're the ones who pay the price. It's easy to quit. Here's a statement. The ditches of life are full of great ideas and callings that were thrown out when things got too hard. The ditches of life are full of those things. When life began to press in, people began to, to cast off. And that's what happens to us so many times in our life. When things begin to get difficult, when God allows circumstances to kind of put us in the fires of life, we want to begin to hit the jet button. 
And yet God is calling us all the time to stay in it. Stay in it. Because things are made when it's hot. Things are created that last when the kitchen is hot. I like what Winston Churchill used to say. It's amazing when you begin to look at a man's life and begin to look at some statements that all of them make sense. And and I found a a website this week that had 24 of the top statements from Winston Churchill. All of these came from this side. I love this statement. A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, but an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Which one are you this morning? Are you the optimist that sees an opportunity even when there's difficult circumstances? Or are you the pessimist that says, we can't do it, it's too hard? You see, the, the, the ten spies that came back when they went out to spy out the land, they were in Numbers, early parts of Numbers. They went out to spy out the promised land. They came back and said, it's everything that God said it would be. But there's giants there, though, and we can't do anything. But Caleb and Joshua said, it's absolutely everything God said it would be, and we can do it. In fact, we must do it. They saw an opportunity even in a difficulty. We need to be opportunists. We need to be those who would press on when life is difficult. Because the reality is this, life is tough. Anybody can say amen to that? Life is tough. Life is difficult. Life is hard. Life has strains and struggles. Life is not fair. But that's reality of living in this fallen world. And so the way to be successful, the way for us to win, the way for us to finish the work that God has given us to do is simply to plod on through the muck and the mire. I didn't watch the Kentucky Derby yesterday, but I saw some of the highlights this morning, and it looked like a mud fest. I mean, you got these couple million dollar horses, or who knows what those things are cost, but they're very expensive and they make a lot of money for their owners, and, and you'd expect, you would want to have a, a bright, sunshiny day with, with light dirt. Instead, you've got mud and mire for the horses to run in. But the one who can plod through the mud, the one who can make it to the end, is the one who's going to win. It's been said that today's mighty oak is yesterday's little nut that held its ground. And so I want us to look at Nehemiah and how he presses on through three different challenges of the work. We're going to look at the first one today, we'll look at the second one next week, and then we'll finish up in a couple weeks with this third challenge that we see in these two chapters, chapter 6 and 7. First of all this morning, I'm going to talk about persevering in the face of overt opposition. Persevering in the face of overt opposition. Here in chapter 6, as we've just read, it opens with the encouraging update on the progress of of the wall. Nehemiah tells us what's happening thus far. He says the work is going forward. The breaches are now closed, unlike what we saw earlier in chapter 4, verse 7. There they were coming together, but there were still expanses where the wall was not completed. It was not connected. Now the wall is connected. The only thing left to do is to install the doors and the gates. And so this is a great statement of progress and a realistic notation of the work that remains to be done. It's not yet finished, but have made great headway. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest of Nehemiah's enemies begin to realize that their window of opportunity is closing, but they can still do something to bring him down. And this just reminds us that it doesn't matter what stage we're in in life, it doesn't matter how close to the finish line we are, we still have an enemy that's working against us. I remember running track in high school my senior year, we were a small private school. We're running against the big, at that time, the highest classification in Arkansas was 5A. So we're running against uh, the 5A schools. We were in Van Buren, by the way. And so we're at this track meet in Van Buren. I was a sprinter, and I was running the, the, the anchor leg of the 4x100 relay. And so we shot off the, you know, the first guy's running. He's run his curve route, or his curve uh, 
um, segment strong. The second guy does the same thing. Third guy does the same thing. And all of a sudden, coming around that third bend, uh, coming to the straightaway, to me, we're in the lead against all of the big schools. And me and Jonathan Russell, a friend of mine, He's handing the baton. He usually ran anchor. For some reason, I was running anchor that day. He goes to hand the baton to me. I reach back for the baton. I grab it with my hand, and I th- thrust my arm forward. The baton hits my leg and shoots off the track. We, I was disqualified. We didn't get the win. It was one of the most devastating athletic moments in my life because of, of what it was. I mean, we were going to potentially. I don't know if I beat those guys in the last leg. I, I might have messed it up some other way, but it doesn't matter how close to the end, how close to the finish line you are. You have an enemy that's fighting against you. Circumstances are fighting against you. Here, Nehemiah has enemies who are seeking every opportunity they could to bring him down. And so they change here tactics and come after this governor. So let me share this, uh, break down the passage here in two parts. First of all, I want you to see the plot to kidnap. We see the plot to kidnap in these first four verses. And now he's telling us what's happened. They're, they're, they've, they've completed the, the wall. They've got to hang the gates. Uh, Geshem and Sanballat send messengers. They're trying to lure him into this arrangement or into this meeting. And so Nehemiah's enemies are beginning to realize that he is more than an imperial appointee simply sent to Jerusalem to build a wall. Why are they going to change tactics on him? They're beginning to see that Nehemiah is something special. They're beginning to see that Nehemiah is an uh, an unlikely leader sent to build this wall. They're also starting to see that Nehemiah is not just a man who's seeking to bring security to Jerusalem. He's also seeking to reestablish biblical community among God's people. He's seeking to reestablish the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh there in Israel, much like Ezra was seeking to do as well just a few years earlier. And so here we see that God raised up an influential spiritual leader, and the only way to get such a well-protected citizen was to lure him into a trap. And so they invite Nehemiah to leave his colleagues, to leave the work behind, and come to this place for a meeting to talk about how they can have a treaty. It's it's a treaty-type engagement cloaked when all they knew, all, the only desire they had was probably to murder him at best to charge him with some sort of neglection or some sort of crime. And so the location that Sanballat and Geshem suggested for their meeting was about halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem. It, it would have lured the government or the governor into the borders of very hostile territories, that of Ashdod and Samaria. And so they could have killed him easily by disclaiming that marauders came and, and took him out. And so they could have got off scot-free, most likely, before King Xerxes. And so Nehemiah recognized this as a thinly disguised death sentence. And so in verse 2, he says, They intended to do me harm. I, we notice three things about Nehemiah here and his response to these men and their request for him to come and meet with them. Three things I want us to, to see here and apply to our own lives. First of all, we see that Nehemiah was discerning. Nehemiah was a very discerning man. We were introduced to him, like I said, back in chapter 1. And there in chapter 1, we, sil- we saw that he was a man of prayer. 
And as soon as he heard what was going on in Jerusalem, he immediately begins to pray, immediately begins to, to seek the face of God, to ask the Lord for wisdom and direction and guidance. And all throughout the story thus far, that's what Nehemiah has done. At every moment when he needed to hear from God, he prays. Whenever he needed to make a decision that was a pivotal decision, he prays for wisdom, he prays for direction. Therefore, I believe it's safe to say and to assume that Nehemiah here in chapter 6 consults the Lord in prayer. He asks the Lord for guidance. He asks him to to help him discern and understand this invitation. The months after he learned of Jerusalem's condition, God continued to speak into his life. In chapter 1, he calls him. Chapter 2, he strengthens him. Chapter 2, again, he's equipping him and encouraging him. In chapter 4, chapter 4, 15, he's protecting him. Now God is warning him of danger. Nehemiah possessed discernment. What is discernment? What is it What does it mean that you are a man or a woman of discernment? Well, the Bible teaches us about this, and we can look at the definition as well. It's simply, it's the ability to judge well. It's the ability to more precisely have a sensitivity to what God would have you do in life. And so Nehemiah understood what he was to do because he had discernment. He was sensitive to the Lord's leadership in his life. That's something we ought to pray for in our own lives. Lord, I've got a decision to make. What, what, what should I do? Give me discernment. Help me to know what to do. Oftentimes when I'm praying for someone who's perhaps in, going in for, before surgery, I pray, Lord, give these physicians the discernment they need to know what needs to be done next. Guide their hands. Help them to skillfully do what needs to be done in the surgery. And help them as they diagnose this issue, give them discernment that they may judge rightly what needs to be done next. Nehemiah was a man of discernment. How did he get this discernment? He got it through prayer and through reading God's word. We see, we'll see next week as we move to, to verse 11 how when he's coerced to go and hide in the temple, he knows that that's a, a false uh, invitation as well because he was forbidden to go in the temple because he wasn't a priest. His reading of the word of God, his time spent in prayer, gave him discernment to see through the facade. He was a man who was discerning. Secondly, he was a man who was resolute. He was resolute. Winston Churchill said this, you have enemies, good. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. I think sometimes as Christians, when people don't like us, we feel bad about that. And we should if, it's, if, it's, uh, if we've done something wrong. But the mere fact that we stand up for truth means that there will be some who stand against us. Right? When you, uh, the old Aaron Tippin song, the old country song from the 80s, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for any day. I don't think I've ever quoted a country song in preaching before, but I have this morning. I love that song from the 80s. I grew up with that song. And it's so true. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And so Nehemiah here is standing for God. He's standing for truth. And so he had enemies who stood against him. This governor was a man of decided principles. He knew what he believed about the situation, and he responded to the request that they made with a firm conviction. Look what he says in verse 3. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He was a man of conviction. He was resolute in his convictions. He had resolve. And so I'm sure that there were some people who would have looked at Nehemiah and and saw him as a very stubborn, as a very unforgiving, uncooperative, and a very opinionated man because he could not be swayed. May we all be like that. 
in the right way. Tempered with grace, tempered with kindness, tempered with gentleness, but resolute in our convictions. Nehemiah couldn't be swayed. See, the culture of his day is very, culture, or very similar to the culture of our day. Our culture today loves tolerance. Tolerance is praised and intolerance is condemned so long as you're tolerant about the right things. And those things are never biblical things. We're supposed to be tolerant of anyone and everything that this world has to offer, but we're supposed to be intolerant to truth and the things God has revealed in his word. We must never be that way. We must be tolerant when it comes to loving people and accepting people and caring for people and serving people, but we should never be tolerant of sin and the things that come with sin. Amen? That's a good place to say amen, to affirm that statement of, of truth. Today, if you hold the biblical view of sexual behavior, the biblical view of marriage, that is of one man and one woman for one lifetime, if you hold the biblical view of alcohol and drug abuse or pro-life issues, today in our culture, you're quickly labeled as a bigot, a right-winger, someone who is out of touch with reality. I would argue this morning, we are not out of touch with reality. We are, in fact, in touch with biblical reality because this is what God has said. Therefore, we stake our lives upon it uncompromisingly. We stand strong, resolute with conviction of what God has said and thus what we believe. But we do so with our lives bearing the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ. May we never be a, a people who pounds our fists on the Bible and, and we say we believe biblical truth and we believe the things that God has said and yet our lives are crusty and mean and cranky and grouchy. May we never stand against the false, falsehoods of this culture and, and speak against the things of this culture, but we do so in a mean-spirited way. We need to have the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus flowing through us. Nehemiah was a man who was discerning. He was resolute. Thirdly, we see that he was also inflexible. It flows out of this resolution of his life. He was inflexible. Notice there in verse 4, and they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. I cannot come down. He was a man of conviction, and the persistence in his life he possessed helped him stay true to his convictions. The Bible tells us that his enemies sent messengers these four times. They urged him to come to their meeting, and in each occasion, he answers them the same way. He refused to come down. He refused to be manipulated. He refused to be worn down. There's something that happens in our homes when we have children. You know what happens? Daddy, can I do this? No, baby, you can't do that. Why? You may give them a reason. They leave, they come right back. Daddy, can I do this? No, babe, you can't do that. They leave, they come. Daddy, can I do this? You ever, does that happen in y'all's home or does that just happen in my home? And then sometimes what they'll do is they go get the sister. Or if you've got boys and girls, they go get brother. And so they kind of team up on you. This, yesterday afternoon, I was at the pool with them at the Y. And, and uh, we, were, we needed to leave. It was time for us to leave. And their friends that live behind us were there. And so they're trying to negotiate. Five more minutes, Dad. Five more minutes for this. No, we've got to go. And so the other mom says, you know, these little kids need to be lawyers. I said, yeah, they're great at lo uh, lobbying up against you and, and, and bringing in all the forces to rally the troops to try to get their own way. They want to wear you down. These men are trying to wear down Nehemiah. 
But Nehemiah was convinced that his work was a great work. Therefore, the work necessitated his time, his energy, and his presence. He would not be distracted. What about in our lives? What is the great work that we're doing that we will not be distracted from? Distraction is an enemy that we all face. It's one of the strongest tactics that Satan deploys against us. So I want you to think with me this morning. Think through the things that persistently distract you from God. The things that distract you from what God has called you to do. What are those things in your life that distract you from your focus being on Jesus, your focus being on the work that he's given you to do? What are those distractions? What is it that keeps you from spending time with the Lord in prayer? What is it that keeps, him, keeps you from spending time with the Lord in his word, reading through the Bible? I love that so many of our people this year are reading chronologically together through the Bible. Many of you are coming on Wednesday nights and, and we're just talking through. What are we learning in our reading? This is an awesome time this year, seeing so many people do that. If you're not reading and spending time consistently in God's word, what is it that distracts you? What keeps you from seeking his face? What keeps you from faithfully worshiping with the church and being a part of a small group? What is it? I was joking with someone in the last day or so. Might even been this morning. I'm not sure. If we could get all of our people at one Sunday, man, it'd be awesome. Pastors, we joke a lot of times when we're together. You know, everybody talks about their trade, right? So when pastors are together, we talk about our trade. And so we kind of classify you guys. You've got your A's. You've got your B's. You've got your C's and D's. And so the A's typically will come the first and third Sunday. The B's are second and fourth Sunday. And your C's are like once a month maybe. And your D's are your Easter, Christmas, and Mother's Day. Right? Or some other holiday. You do sporadically throughout the year. And so if we could ever get the A's and B's together, man, we'd have a great attendance on, uh, on a monthly basis. If we could get our A's, B's, and C's and maybe throw some D's in every now and again, we'd have some strong stuff going on. And, and, and I, it's a joke for that. But what is it that keeps us so distracted, so, so uh, off kilter in our attendance to worship? What is it that keeps us out of small groups and in fellowship and in community with others? What is it that distracts us? It's so many things, but I'm telling you, it is an enemy, a ploy from the enemy in our lives, and we must not give in to it. There's nothing more important than our relationship with Jesus, and he calls us into community with himself and with other followers of Jesus. Paul says that we're one body in Christ, many members making up one body, and Jesus is the head. What keeps you from taking the gospel to your neighbors and the nations? What is it that keeps you from going across the street, sharing the gospel with your coworker, sharing the gospel with people in our community when we have different opportunities? What is it this morning that keeps you from getting on a plane, perhaps, and going overseas cross-culturally to share the gospel? Pastor, I don't have enough money. None of us have enough money. Pastor, I live on a fixed income. So do I. There's no overtime in my job. Don't give me those excuses. Those are simply distractions from what God would have you to do. I've never known a person that God's called to go on a short-term mission trip that they did not raise the money because God provided. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in countless people's lives as well. Distractions are the work of the enemy in our life. What happens oftentimes is we choose something good over what's the best. Nehemiah didn't do that. He was inflexible. He was persistent in his convictions. God and God's calling upon his life were the two most important things in his life. And he refused to allow anything else to take their place. 
And so we see these three characteristics in Nehemiah come to life through this overt opposition, this in-his-face opposition. And we need to remember here that circumstances don't create the man. They simply reveal his character. And so as this opposition is coming against him, it's simply pushing back who Nehemiah really was. He was a man who was discerning, resolute, and inflexible. Second thing I want us to see here in verses 5 through 9 is the plot to malign. The first attempt didn't work, and so now Sanballat's going to try a different tactic. We see here he's just as persistent as Nehemiah. And so after being turned down four times, Sanballat now decides to send his servant back to Nehemiah with an open letter in his hand. You say, what is an open letter? Well, it's a letter that anybody could read. And so basically what these servants were doing, or servant, whoever had the letter, as they were traveling to Nehemiah, they're not just traveling as a courier, courier with a letter. Now they're traveling with a letter. It's open, and they're openly sharing it with anyone and everyone they could. They're talking about it. They're talking loud. We can look at it this way. This is the first time in recorded history that a Facebook rant is made. Some of you have made those Facebook rants, I guess. (laughs) You've heard them at least. Man, that's what happens so much time, so many times in in life is is that we try a different tactic or the enemy tries a different tactic against us. And so Sam Ballant here used this letter to spread rumors. He used it to cast out, to create speculations as to why Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall. What he's doing is he's questioning Nehemiah's character and his intentions. And you know how he validated it? Geshem says the same thing. That's what we do also. When we, we want our way, we try to bring in some, some sort of third party. He says, well, look at him. He agrees with me. That's what somebody will do to you when they're bringing an accusation. He will agree, or you'll get someone to agree with you about it. So he's trying to use this, this open letter, these rumors in the open letter to bully, to intimidate, to manipulate the situation. He hoped that the threat of King Artaxerxes hearing about all of this would force Nehemiah to comply. But the governor wasn't shaken. Remember, he's inflexible. He's resolute. He's a discerning, godly man. And he dismisses the charges, and he goes back to work there in verses 8 and 9. He says, these things are just invented in your mind. And he immediately goes back to his work. This brings up something that I think we need to talk about. When the accusations come, how do we handle accusations? It's not easy to handle accusations. And oftentimes in our life, if if you're trying to live a holy, godly life, there will be accusations against you. What do you do with those? When they're unfounded, what do you do with accusations? I want to share with you three things that I think we need to learn here with this idea of accusations. When someone is falsely smearing you or slandering you, you need to realize that although it's painful, the experience can be educative. And so what do we learn? First of all, there's something to learn about you. When you're being accused of something, you need to look internally because there's something to learn about you. King David said this in Psalm 7. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil... And he goes on to talk about it. We're going to share a little bit more about that in a minute. He says also in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so when an accusation is made, David here, I believe, is showing us that regardless of how outrageous the accusation may be, you need to honestly examine yourself. Asking the Lord, God, is there anything that I can learn from this? Is there any truth whatsoever to what they're saying? I know this is going to be a shock to you, but in my 20 years in ministry now, 
I started in 1998 working full-time for uh, my home church. Now it's 2018. Good night. I thought we were supposed to, the uh, world was supposed to end in 2000, but it never did, and we're still here. In my 20 years of ministry, there have been some people who did not like me personally or and or didn't like my philosophy of ministry, my approach to ministry. I know that shocks you, right? That somebody would not like me. I've had people bring accusations against me. I've had I, I, one of my I've pastored three churches now. I've been on staff at several churches. I've had people speak against me, backstab me, and business me. I mean, I've I've seen it all in church life. And, and every time, the best way I know how, and I didn't do it very well early on. I was much more confrontational as a younger man than I am now as a uh, half dead man. Is what I was telling our staff this week. I'm half dead. Um, if I live to be eighty, I'm half dead. And so I was much more confrontational back then, so I didn't do as much then as I do now. But in every situation, I've tried to step back from the situation and look at it and say, God, is there anything that I can learn from this? Is there any truth to what they're saying? Is there anything that, that I need to look at and I need to work on, anything I need to confess to you or to them? Lord, what is it that I can learn from this situation? Job and his, his issues, though it wasn't with someone else, he had those who came and actually accused him of being wrong. And so he kept saying, I'm blameless, I'm blameless, I'm blameless. But if you get to the end of Job, you see that he also learned something about the Lord and he learned something about himself. And so in every situation, in the face of overt opposition, there's something to learn about you. Secondly, there's something to learn from Scripture. When the malign comes, one of the best places to run is God's Word. That's oftentimes what happens. When life begins to, the, the, the rug begins to be pulled out from underneath us, what happens is we hopefully will run to the Lord and to His Word. And so it is there where we learn how to respond. When we open the Word of God, we learn how uh, David in the face of his overt opposition, as King Saul was seeking to kill him. If you're reading chronologically with us, we've been reading through the life of David in the last couple weeks. And we've seen him on the run. We've seen him go to God. We've seen him write these beautiful psalms. And in all of it, he's demonstrating his faith, saying, God, I know that you're going to take care of me. God, I know that you're going to care for me. God, I know that your promise is going to come true. And so when we read God's word in moments like this, we learn from Scripture that God has got this. God has got this. The Bible shows us how others have been falsely accused. Others have been abused. Others have been shipwrecked or whatever happens in their life. And we see how their faith grew through the trials. And that leads us to a third thing we need to learn. There's something to learn about God. No matter how sad the circumstances, there's always something we can learn about God. If we were to read on in Psalm 7, we would see there that, that David was troubled about allegations that were made against him by a Benjamite by the name of Cush. He discovered in his emotional pain that God was his refuge. He learned that God was his judge, and he would judge this man who was falsely accusing him. He also learned that God was his shield. That it didn't matter what others were saying about him because God stood as his shield to receive all of those brunts, all of those accusations, all of those falsehoods. And so we come to the Word and see that God is faithful. We learn that God can be trusted. We learn that He will never leave or forsake you or I. We see that justice will prevail. We learn that God knows what is being said and done to us, and we learn that He is acting on our behalf. There is something to learn in the midst of opposition, in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. There's something to learn about God. There's something to learn about the Bible, and there's something to learn about ourselves. Circumstances 
don't create the man. They only reveal his character. So this morning, what are the difficulties that you're facing reveal about you? This week I was thinking back just over the last several months of things that have happened in the life of our church. We've had people die unexpectedly. Church members losing family members unexpectedly. We've seen jobs lost. We've seen car wrecks happen. We've had illnesses and injuries. We've even had trees fall on cars and diagnosis of cancer. I mean, it goes on and on and on. All sorts of things happening in the lives of our people. And in each and every situation, there was an opportunity to throw in the towel and to give up. And that's what some people do. Some people will say, you know what? This, this Christian thing's not worth it. I kind of signed up in this deal so that I'd have this easy life and, and this easy trek, and yet this is not what I signed up for, and so they'll bow out. But the Christian, the faithful, the persevering believer will not do that. Instead, what you'll do is you'll lean into the Lord a little bit more. You'll trust the Lord a little bit more. You'll learn from the Lord a little bit more. You'll learn more about yourself, and that's what we're seeing in the lives of our people is that you're leaning in, and I'm grateful for that. You've had this opportunity to learn about yourself, to learn about God, to grow in your faith. It reminded you that God didn't promise you that easy, carefree life as a Christ follower. Instead, Jesus in John 16, says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so this morning, I want to encourage you as a Christian, press on, plod on, keep to the work. Put one foot in front of the other. If life begins to set you back, take another step forward. If it hits you again, take another step forward. If you can't bear the brunt, you've got someone there who's carrying the load for you. You don't carry it yourself. You allow Jesus to carry it for you. And you walk step in step with him every single step of life. Press on, Christian. Press on. In the face of opposition, press on. That's the type of God we serve. That's the type of Savior who has saved us who's redeemed us as his children, who's forgiven our sins, taken it his way as far as the, the east is from the west, and the Bible says that he remembers it no more. Press on. I'm going to ask Nick and those to come. And let's just go to the Lord. This is a great time to respond in faith. We're going to sing a song that we sang last week, Just As I Am. And this morning, I, I don't know what every single person is going through. I know what some of you are going through, but it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what trial, what circumstance you're struggling through this morning. Jesus stands with you. Maybe this morning you're walking at a guilty distance. God has allowed circumstances to to play out in your life the way they have, not because he hates you, not because he's out to get you. The reason he's doing it is he wants to get your attention. He wants to reveal himself to you. And because you're so distracted with the things of this life, the only way he can get your attention is to pull something away from you. So maybe that's you this morning. And maybe what he wants to tell you is you're not in relationship with him. And this morning in his grace, he's saying, I, want, I love you. I've died for you. I, I've done everything possible so that your sin can be forgiven. Come to me and be in relationship with me. Confess your sin. Trust me in faith. Maybe this morning that's your decision. Or as a believer, you need to just simply... Say, Lord, you've got my attention. Now show me what you want to teach me. Reveal this to me. As we turn, 
as we stand in just a moment, I'm going to just invite you. If, if that's you this morning, you just come to this, make this an altar, and you just get on your knees or stand here, fall prostrate on the floor, whatever you want to do. Pray. Seek the Lord's face. This is a time to respond. If you need to be in a relationship with Jesus, you come forward this morning, and we'll get you with one of our encouragers, and they'll help walk you through the gospel, how you could put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you want to join our church this morning. We can begin that process. So I want to invite you to come. And this time for responses, we stand and sing. So across the room, let's stand, let's sing, and let's respond in faith. The God who loves us, the God who sustains us, is the God who's calling us to press 